Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. I hope everybody had a great weekend. I had a good time yesterday with some family and friends, and that's always good. That's always fun and just kind of warms your heart. My husband and I went and celebrated uh, one of my cousin's birthdays, so it was nice. It was just really nice. So I hope you had an enjoyable one as well. Well, we're, like, leaving one history uh, celebration for one month of celebrations, and we're entering another. It's coming up on the end of Black History Month, although we try to celebrate Black History, you know, 365. But we also are coming up on Women's History Month in a few days, starting on my mom's birthday, March 1st. But anyway, want to talk a little bit about what's going on with one particular uh, location, and that is the Orange County Regional History Center, and we have Executive Director Pam Schwartz that's on with us this morning to give us some insight. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I am well for a Monday. How are you? Uh, yes, just, uh, it is a Monday, but we're doing okay, you know, and I think like I was saying, you kind of maybe have to get into Monday by starting off with something good on the weekend, you know, so you yeah. still kind of uplift it. So, yeah, yeah beautiful, beautiful weather, right? So I, I can't complain too much, and uh, I'm just so honored, so thank you for having me. Oh, appreciate you taking the time out, really do. So give us a little insight in terms of the um, History Center, because for those that don't know it, it, it wasn't always a History Center. It was actually a jail at one point, right? Uh, it was the orange, uh, one of the many various iterations of the Orange County Courthouse, which, yes, did have a, a small jail on the fifth floor, which is, you know, I always joke where my office is now. So whatever that, that says to you. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Hopefully you're not seeing any ghosts or anything like that. No, so. you know, there's a lot of stories over the years, but I've spent a lot of hours inside these walls, and I've not, uh, I've not, uh, not spoken to anybody directly. So. Okay, good, <laughs> good. So tell us a little bit about the museum and uh, the history center and uh, what you do, how it got started and what it houses and how people can experience it. 
Sure. So uh, in, in our current form, the History Center is located right in downtown Orlando uh, next to the public library, if you're familiar with that, just a block from Lake Eola uh, in that big old courthouse building. So, um, you know, we are a history museum here and we cover four, around 14,000 years worth of history, give or take a few, you know, hundred years. Um, and then we also do a seven county region. So we're Orange County, but all of the counties that also touch it. So it's not just Orlando history. It's not just Orange County county history, we actually cover the full Central Florida region. So the roots of our museum, uh, we actually go back into the 1940s uh, when the local community was, you know, celebrating one of these sort of founding, you know, X amount of years. And um, they had some small displays uh, of historical items in the old courthouse, which was out actually in front of the current museum, uh, out in what we call now Heritage Square, that little park out there. So there was a different building. They had some displays. And that was sort of what kind of kicked us off a little bit, uh, starting to recognize that important to preserve history and to learn from history. Uh, I think sometimes we forget that also, but uh, that's a, a longer story. Um, so they had those small displays and it just sort of, you know, built over time of people sort of, um, you know, donating items and different things. And so around the 1970s, we became a formal, uh, what you would say is like a nonprofit historical society of Central Florida did that. Uh, our museum actually used to be up in Lock Haven Park, if anyone's familiar with the Shakespeare Theater. We actually used to be located there. Uh, and then around the turn of the century, uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, this, they built the new courthouse and this beautiful historic building became available. So there was a big movement to move from that much smaller location in Lock Haven uh, into this historic building right downtown. So we took advantage of that. And we uh, moved into this space and we've been here ever since. And so what we've been working on, uh, we've, we've gone under a lot of change, I think, in the last half a decade or so. I think everybody has, <laughs> given all that's going on in the world. But we've certainly um, been spending a lot of time considering who we are as a museum, how we serve our community, who our community even is, um, and uh, kind of tackling a lot of really big theoretical things, but putting those into practice. So we have a variety of exhibits here uh, on a variety of topics, but we also um, have a very, very robust uh, lineup of programming throughout the year. So it's definitely not a one and done. It's a uh, come back and, and see our new special exhibits, come back and uh, attend programs and different things like that. So that's just a sort of a fast overview of how we kind of came to the now, but we certainly got a lot of exciting things coming up. So now let's talk about Black History. And even though it's the end of Black History Month, you all have been celebrating constantly. Can you talk about uh, what how you've celebrated Black History in Central Florida? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like I said, we have changed a lot in the last several years. So when our museum opened in this site here downtown around 2000, um, we put in all brand new exhibits. And then about four or five years later, we did open uh, an African-American and Black History exhibition. So we have that exhibit. But uh, part of what we've been working on the last few years has been to, um, I would say, do a lot of homework for making a better museum. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of collecting and learning and oral histories uh, and growing. And what, what we do is sort of a, in a museum terminology, we call it decolonizing our collection. So we've been making our collection more reflective of our entire community's experience and not just some people's uh, experience in our community. So definitely looking at diversifying our collections and our exhibitions. So 
what we've uh, what we've been working on um, specifically this month are a few different things, um, and you know we also celebrate Black History uh, all year round in many different ways because it is all around us all of the time, and it we can't tell the story of Central Florida without it. It's not one chapter. If you take a chapter out of a book, uh, the book doesn't make so much sense anymore, right? So uh, we're constantly um, having different programs and different things about all sorts of different history, but specifically that. So. In this last month, we've um, we had uh, several different events. We had a sort of our inaugural um, celebration of arts and culture, uh, and we had a day where we had performances and spoken word and activities all throughout our building uh, that you could do that were uh, sort of framed around people. Right, history is less interesting when it's dates, and it's more interesting when it's about human stories that we can sort of relate to. And so, uh, each of these different act activities actually looked at. Um, somebody uh, in Central Florida's history from the black community and sort of uh, was based around them. So we did that. We uh, Just this uh, yesterday, I guess, uh, we had our Breckner Lecture Series. So our Breckner Lecture Series we do each spring, and it's usually three to four programs, um, and it's named after Joseph Breckner, uh, who was a civil rights advocate um, here in Central Florida. And each year we do different topics, but this year we've actually been looking at the theme of music because um we um have our figurehead exhibition right now which is a special exhibit about the underground music scene here in the 80s and 90s um and it well the figurehead exhibit is really fascinating special exhibit we note that that music scene a lot of diversity um it was a, a very sort of white centered community though there were lots of people um from all backgrounds that enjoyed the music and went to those shows um we really used the lecture the Breckner lecture series to augment that um to make sure that we're looking at different types of music um and from you know different uh, people from different um, backgrounds, from different locations, different movements of music. Uh, and so on Sunday, we actually had um, um, a, a man who came and talked about hip hop and joy and pain through black music. Uh, and it was, uh, my understanding, a very, very robust discussion. So, you know, we, we come at history from all different angles, um, but those are some of the things we've just uh, kind of focused on in the last month or so. But we've got all sorts of um, additional programming coming up because, again, it's not just a one month where we're recognizing and reflecting on that history. You all sound like you're quite busy, quite busy. And how, I guess I want to know how how much time it took or how much research it took to really find um, the people because, like you say, you, you can deal with a lot of stats, you can deal with, you know, a lot of fact-based type of stuff, but getting the stories is really what, you know, anchors a person to uh, to the history. And so how were you able to do that? Because one of the things, and you mentioned something, and I truly understand about uh, trying to retain history, because uh, I, I unfortunately, you know, I grew up here, but I, I see a lot of it kind of being lost for the sake of progress. So it's, it's sometimes it's very difficult, and then we're such a mobile type of mobile type of society. Uh, we move, we move away, we move back, but we lose touch with people, and we lose touch with uh, the things that that you know really made the history of of the city and of the the region. So, what did it take for you to get to these people and get their stories? Well, that is actually the hardest thing that we do uh, in our museum. And, uh, you know, I would say it's a work in progress, but the, 
I don't know, it's a, it's, how much time do we have? That's a really long conversation. No, I'll try to, I'll try to, <laughs> <up>. <laughs> um, you know, take your time. <laughs> we can only share the history in our walls that has been provided to us, that is available. Now, something we know throughout history is that um, the white community has been very good about preserving their own history, building museums, writing things down, um, but many other groups and cultures uh, have oral traditions or other ways or were intentionally left out of the historical record. So it is a really big challenge sometimes to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So. Like I said, you know, when we opened our, our uh, first, our, our current um, core exhibit on black history 20 years ago, we didn't have that much to go on. We had a lot more sort of academic research. Uh, and we worked with an advisory council from the community, from the black community specifically, to help us sort of find those stories. And so most of the best work we do is by word of mouth. And, you know, in America's museums, which are, you know, generally carrying a wealthy, white, affluential narrative, We've got to break that down. We have to build trust with communities, right, to let them know we want to be good stewards of your story. We cannot tell the Central Florida story without your story, right? Um, but it, it is, it's about trust. And so we, we want the local community to see us as their institution, right? Um, not just somebody serving them, but somebody working with them to actually pr actively preserve that history, to actively tell their stories. So we really encourage anybody who you know, like, there's no one way to do history. It's not like, I've been here exactly 12 years. I'm a good applicant to come and talk to the History Center. You know, some people accomplish big things in a little period of time. Some people have lived here 100 years, right, and they're 102 or whatever that is. So there's a lot of different ways that we, we come at storytelling and the different themes. But, um, you know, Sometimes we just have to wait for people to come to us, and sometimes we seek them out. But I would say word of mouth, if you know somebody who's been in this community for a long time, bring up doing an oral history with us. Often that's where it starts, is just an invitation to meet and let us hear your story if you're willing to share it. And then it's looking at, okay, well, do you have photographs that show that time you did that thing? Or, oh, my gosh, you have your mother's this that she brought with her when they moved here from South Carolina or they moved here from um, – you know, Wyoming, wherever people have come from. So it's it's a lot of sort of grassroots, sort of just finding people, learning from people. Sometimes we'll see a news article about someone and we're like, oh my gosh, we need to speak to that person because <laughs> uh, they've lived here. And, and like you said, we are mobile. We're a transient population, especially it seems in Orlando. So when we find people who've been here sort of multi-generation or even themselves a long time, it's really important that we hear those stories. And, you know, right now, I would say that our specifically, you know, since we're talking about that, our black history exhibit, it doesn't tell all the stories. Of course, we're confined by space, but sometimes if mm -hmm. we're not telling a story, it's not necessarily because we don't want to. It might be because we don't know or we don't have any photos or artifacts or anything to sort of tell that story with. So it's um, it's a bit of a challenge, but I'll say um, – about, let's see, 2020, we opened an exhibit, and it was actually about the Ocoee Massacre, which uh, if listeners aren't aware, uh, if they've heard of Rosewood or they heard of Tulsa, this was a very similar event that happened right here in Ocoee uh, in uh, 1920, about 100 years ago. So a local group of individuals who knew about this story came to us and asked us to do an exhibit. And this is a, a racial terror massacre uh, centered around a man trying to vote and being turned away. But it, of course, has a lot more to it than all of that. Um, but we didn't have anything to tell the story with. There was as much wrong information out there as there was right information. And so we had to mm. start just digging in and doing research. 
and we started meeting people. We started meeting individuals who were descendants of the black families who had been impacted by this massacre 100 years ago. Now, 100 years isn't a lot of time. We're talking about people whose parents, people whose grandparents were impacted by this Mm -hmm. event. Nobody was still living, you know. But, um, you know, having the personal testimony of these individuals and, you know, some of the people we met didn't even know this was part of their family tree's story. So, you know, we're constantly learning. And I ended up connecting with 76 descendants of families who were living um, and, you know, property owners in Ocoee at the time of this massacre and, and burning down this community. Um, wow. So it's really, it's, but I, I can't even, I, I won't even try to count uh, how many hours I spent doing genealogy to try to find all of these individuals um, and to see if they wanted to share with us. And one of the cool things we got to do actually was to put everyone together. Uh, they're from about 11 different families, but it's 76 people. And we were able to host a, what they called a, like a family reunion on a Sunday. So I, I put a Zoom together where they from all over the United States were able to come together and meet each other as, you know, again, descendants of this type of an event. So, you know, some of that, again, was sort of word of mouth. But all of these individuals really entrusted us with this story. So we spent three years, which is about three times as much as we normally get for an exhibit, doing research. And it wasn't just about a Koei. We tried to figure mm-hmm. out how did a Koei happen? Like what allowed those conditions to come into place? As we kept backing up the timeline, we got all the way into the 1500s with the initial enslavement of Africans and forcibly bringing them to St. Augustine here in Florida. Um, and that is when the system start that uh, eventually still hundreds of years later, um, uh, you know, essentially enable or allow something like that Koei massacre to happen. And then we said, well, where's the end of that story? And we brought it all the way up to today. As we're putting up the exhibit, we're ripping down text panels because we have the murder of George Floyd. Well, the Black Lives Matter movement officially, you know, formally starts here in Central Florida with the murder of Trayvon Martin. And the things happening in Daytona, that's part of our region. So we, we, couldn't, we couldn't even just put the exhibit up. We had to keep editing and altering it because history was happening so quickly. And we were constantly finding people, calling people, um, working with the Goldsboro Museum and, and trying to, to tell this, you know, five or 600 years of history. Um, and so, again, it's 500 years of dates and things. But what was really important were finding the people uh, and talking to them and then having them trust us as an institution to do better than we've maybe done in the past uh, at making sure that their stories are accurately reflected and in their own voice. Um, We do things differently now. You know, we used to be, you know, curators were sort of fancy pants authoritative folks who like wrote these text panels and you were supposed to come learn from them. It's not how we do history now. Now Mm -hmm. we do an oral history and we put your own audio clip or your own quote on the wall. Let the people tell their story in their own voice. Now, in the case where people have long since (laughs) departed, (laughs) uh, we can't do that Mm -hmm. because we don't have oral histories with, you know, people um, who, you know, had been enslaved in Central Florida or, or whatnot. So we have to fill in the gaps sometimes. But even still, you know, those times are not without any sort of documentation. So um, it's, a, it's a challenge. We're constantly changing the way that we do history now. And, um, you know, I'll say our ACOE exhibit that we did, though it was a special exhibit that was temporary, we're currently designing a long-form uh, digital storytelling website So that 500 years of black history that's very thoroughly researched, that includes those human stories, will be available online sometime within this next year. Um, And it's going to be really uh, a beautiful and awesome uh, and in-depth site. 
And we're also, another thing we're working on this year, um, which is a work in progress. Uh, we don't have an end date of when it will be done <laughs> um, because we do have a small staff. But we're actually looking at taking our existent Black History exhibition and the, all the work we did for the ACOE exhibit, which again was temporary, and we're going to start lacing them together and spreading them throughout the museum. So right now, our current exhibit, it has outdated language because it was written 20 years ago. Uh, we've learned a lot of, of new things that we didn't know before. We've gotten new artifacts and new stories. So we're going to be working on updating that exhibit, but instead of sort of keeping it as its own separated chapter on the second floor where it currently is, we're going to start integrating it throughout the entire historical narrative so that the whole story makes a lot more sense. Um, and making sure that we really uh, give rise to the, the individual voices as well. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot we've got going on besides the programs and things, but trying to constantly, we're learning new history and history is happening every single day. So it's a, definitely a challenge for museums right now. One of the things you mentioned is trying to sift through and, and make sure that it's accurate. How do you verify some of these uh, stories or some of these artifacts that you come to contact with? Oh goodness. Um <laughs> it's uh it's a challenge. So, you know, that is that is something, you know, we there's been, you know, people throughout time who've done research and we create things like um, you know, there's books and things like that about different topics, but it doesn't mean it's always sourced well. Sometimes, you know, we have primary sources. So let's say uh, a death certificate or a certificate that comes from government. Now, we've also learned by doing good history that Sometimes the people writing the death certificate had reasons for maybe not having it be so accurate. Um, and so, like, we look at uh, July Perry, who was the man who was lynched during the Ocoee Massacre. Uh, mm -hmm. Every document that exists for his death and, and uh, taxes and all of that, every single one has been erased, written on, altered at some point in time. Um, so we can't always trust that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, in terms of authenticating artifacts, uh, you know, there's a lot of convincing duplicates of things. There's, um, you know, somebody brings in an artifact and says, hey, this is the the thing used for this. And then we see a date on it. And we're like, well, that wasn't created till after that event. So I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've also learned in talking to people, you know, we really um, – respect and cherish oral histories from individuals. And the idea is that individuals share their own story in their own voice, their own memory, but we all know we remember things differently, right? Like my sister and I might tell a story from our childhood very differently, like who actually ate the last brownie? Um, you know, we might remember it and or tell it differently. Um, and so those are, those are all challenges we face. And so what we try to do in what we call interpretation, which is sort of how we put the stories on the walls, right? We try to just recognize that it's complicated. We say reportedly, or, you know, reportedly this is what happened, or, um, you know, trying to let people know that, you know, most of the time we don't 1,000% factually know anything. Um, but usually, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what we can do is look at different corroborating stories. If, you know, three people told us it and we've got, you know, six doc primary sources or documents that also say it, um, then that's, you know, likely the, the, best, uh, the best thing that happened. But, you know, for a long time, people have taken a lot of primary sources, again, like government-made documents and things, uh, census records as absolute fact, and they just aren't because those records were created by humans, uh, and humans aren't perfect. <laughs> 
So it's, a, it's, it's something we spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on is trying to authenticate statements or, you know, learn what's true. And when we don't know, we just say that. Sometimes we say we don't know the answer or this is what one person said, and it might be their truth, but we also know that there's often, you know, I think three different truths. Is that what they say? My story, your story, and then the one in between. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, you say that you have a small staff. I understand. Do you use volunteers? Yes, absolutely. We do. Um, we love volunteers and uh, we have a lot of different opportunities. So, if people like kiddos, we have uh, hundreds of school children all of the time, uh, and so we're always looking for docents to help with those student tours. Uh, but we also have our collections department where we're actively archiving and digitizing our collections to make them more accessible and growing them. We have an exhibits department where we're building exhibits and doing research. So um, we do love to have volunteers and would really welcome people. You can visit our website, which is simple, thehistorycenter.org. And, um, you know, look for our volunteer tab or get involved and, and learn about that because we always need help and there's just honestly always a lot of really cool stuff shaking down over here. So um, you're kind of going to be transitioning a little bit into Women's History Month probably, right? Yeah, absolutely. We look for any reason to celebrate history all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> So what's on the agenda? Can you, is there anything you can tell us about coming up for Women's History? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say our biggest thing, uh, you know, we always have a variety of stuff going on, but our biggest thing is our fourth annual Women's History Month breakfast. Uh, it's on March 9th, and so if you can kind of scoot out of work and come on over, um, it's from 8 to 10, so 8 to 9 o'clock we have a, a full breakfast and sort of chatting and hanging out, and then from 9 to 10 we'll have a a program, and this year we're honoring pathbreaking architects Ida Anna Ryan and Isabel Roberts, which are two women architects who lived here in Central Florida. Um, they built the the predecessor to our current band shell at Lake Eola. They built, um, uh, designed many many buildings throughout Central Florida, uh, and of course they were working at a time when women weren't really allowed into the profession, uh, and so often they might be listed as a, a secretary or an assistant as opposed to an architect in their own right, which they really were. Um, in past years, we've we've honored uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, we uh, recognize Marianne Carroll, who is one of the Florida Highwaymen painters as well, uh, the one woman of 26 artists in that group. And so wow. this is yeah, it's a really cool breakfast because not only do you get to come and be surrounded by a bunch of amazing people, um, it actually helps to support our Her Story Women in History internship. So one thing we've recognized over the last several years is that the museum field is not very diverse, and that's because it takes volunteering and it takes uh, unpaid internships to get a foot in the door most places. And so, mm -hmm. uh, again, it's been a very white field. So we wanted to start creating paid internship opportunities so people could get paid to come and learn how to work in a museum and trying to diversify um, the individuals who, who are here. Um, and so the Her Story Women's History Internship uh, is a paid placement, and anybody can apply for it, but it's specifically about raising up women's stories and the historical narrative um, and bringing those stories to light. So you get to come and you get to learn about uh, amazing women, be surrounded by a bunch of amazing people. You don't have to be a, uh, you know, a woman to come. You can identify however you like and come enjoy it. Um, but, it, again, it helps us to give really great qualified experience um, to a much broader pool of, of applicants and learning how to get into museums and doing good history. 
You have given us a lot of information, <laughs> and I know you've got to run soon. Uh, tell me, tell us, basically, how how do you, first of all, how do people contact the 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 center, um, and how do people get involved? Either as I don't know if you are hiring any other staff, if and also what about volunteers, and also are you taking donations? Yes, so. The, the best thing to do is to start at our website, thehistorycenter.org. And um, at the bottom, we have uh, a careers page that has jobs and volunteer opportunities. We also have a tab for volunteers underneath of support. We have an events page that tells you about, or that will give you more information on all these great events I've sort of talked about. Um, and we, we do take donations, and that's not only in the form of, you know, oral histories and artifacts. If you've lived here or you have a story important to Central Florida, again, Orange County and all the counties that touch it, we're interested in. Um, just reach out and talk to us, and we've got our contact information on there. But also, you know, financially, uh, you know, we all know that money is what makes more work happen. So um, we are part of the United Arts Campaign, and if you give to, and we've got information on our website as well, if you give through the United Arts Campaign now through the end of April, any of your donations will actually be matched by an additional 15%. So that's a really excellent opportunity to support your local institutions, um, but also supporting and preserving local history. So. Check out our website, the contact information, careers, volunteering, donations. It's all available there. And if all else fails, just stop in and say hi. Pam Schwartz, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And, yes, we did post on the G's Power Hour Facebook page the link to the History Center. So just really uh, am looking forward to um, getting to know more about the center and, you know, hopefully get involved too. So. Thank you for your time and, and, and your work. We really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Have a great week. You too. And we're going to talk a little more history with my friend Stephanie Dukes when we come back. There is a historic designation last week, and we want to kind of give you a little insight on it. This is over in Lake County. Jiggy's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we want to, again, thank Pam Schwartz, the Executive Director of the Orange County Regional History Center, for um, sharing the information with us and taking the time out. I'm looking forward to going back there. I went there with my husband uh, one year. We kind of did the um, uh, let's uh, be a visitor in Orlando type of thing for part of um, one of our anniversary trips. And it was really, we stayed at a bed and breakfast downtown, and we did go to the History Center. It was really nice. So 
But now, my friend Stephanie Dukes is going to share some information with us about some history in Lake County that was celebrated last week. Good morning. Good afternoon. How you doing? Good morning, Lady G. It's good to be here with you and your listening audience. How was your weekend? Oh, it was nice. Uh, I, I had mentioned earlier uh, one of my cousins was celebrating. Um, uh, it was actually a surprise birthday party for her, and um, you know, just went out and had a good time with some family and friends. It was just really and had some good food too. So, yeah, wonderful. So what about, wonderful. Yeah, I know you you had a busy weekend. Um, but um, you also you have more than a busy weekend. You just busy period. <laughs> but uh, you also um, have something to celebrate in Lake County, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have a treasure. You know, it doesn't take much to just look around and find a treasure. Sometimes it's right in your backyard. <laughs> And uh, this treasure we want to talk about today is right here in our backyard in Lake County. It's located over in Okahonka. Do you know where that is, Gretchen? I can't say. I think I either have driven through it maybe. I've seen the sign ever since I was a kid, but haven't really visited Mm -hmm. Okahonka. So, yeah. Well, okay. It's located right between here, like we said, here in Lake County. But if you're on Highway 27 and between Lake County and, um, oh, Lord, going north on 27, you will come up and see the sign there that says Okahonka. And it is a treasure right there. We on uh, 27, and I believe that's 426 that it's okay. off Because of. I know I've, I've seen the sign off of uh, 441, I think, because, uh, yeah, because I'm usually mm-hmm. traveling 441 and then seeing the sign. But, um, yes. yeah, there's a um, 441 there's a right historical... before you get to Leesburg there. Okay, all right. So mm-hmm. there was a historical designation in in Lake County in in Okahonka last week, right? Yes, yes, and it has to do with the a partnership that was forged for educational purposes, and we all are, always are talking about how important an education and mind is a terrible thing to waste. Mm-hmm. So back in between 1921 and 1932, there were a group of schools built here in Florida, and Lake County was fortunate enough to be one of the sites that was chosen and known as the Rosenwalk Schools. And who that was, he was the president of Sears and Robot School, And Booker T. Washington had convinced him to build schools to educate African-American students in poor communities who could not afford an education. Most of the time when we think of an education in this area, uh, we think of Mary Bethune, uh, Mary McLeod Mm -hmm. Bethune, who did Bethune-Cookman, and but we don't hear a lot about these schools. So this was a two what's now a two school building that was done and it was built 
on his contribution of he would give anywhere from three to five hundred dollars to build these buildings, and mm-hmm. then the school board, the local school board, which Lake County School Board at that time contributed, as well as the community had to raise the funds, and the school building cost back then when it was built. Three thousand over three thousand two hundred dollars to build this facility to educate the students in that area, and mm-hmm. they went to school there. Any of you who are familiar with the way the one we used to call the one room schoolhouse mm-hmm. had multiple school levels. And this was one of those school rooms that had multiple school levels in it taught by one teacher who had to teach to about four different grade levels at this school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my mom used to talk about that all the time. Yes, yes. So the community came together and successfully lobbied the state of Florida to get this school building, which is now was just sitting empty. The history was decaying, literally decaying into the ground because, you know, when we had when the United States Supreme Court ruled back in 1954 that segregation was unconstitutional, they began to move the African-American students out of our school building into what was known then as the uh, white schools that we had to segregate into them, which left our African-American facilities to go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. This building then became a community center, Gretchen. And as the community center began to decay and funds to, you know, keep it up to date was not available Eventually, the building was not being used. So Mm. thank God that a group of citizens came together and successfully lobbied the Florida Trust for Preservation, Historical Preservation, and was able to get the school site listed on what is known as Florida has a site that is called um, 11 to Save. And the 11 to save list is the most endangered historical places in Florida that are highlighted every year. This list, I didn't even realize to a couple of years ago that this list is provided every year. Communities can lobby to have their sites, uh, areas in their community put on this list of 11 to save that receives a lot of publicity from the state of Florida, fundraising, eligibility for grants. And when you submit and nominate, this list is huge. Okay. Mm. I never heard of it. Yeah, this list is huge. And the Okahonka, that little small bedroom community, was able to successfully lobby and made that 11 to save list. And from there, they were able to be supported to go on and receive this national designation, which allows for that building not to be torn down, okay? 
Now, there's if you if you got a little bit more time, I'd like to tell you about some people who are connected mm-hmm. to this building. Okay. Okahunka is has two significant connections to Lake County. One of them mm-hmm. is into Florida. It is the town where I don't know if many people have heard of him, but Virgil D. Hawkins. Have you ever heard of him? The civil rights leader? I'm not certain. I mean, it's not top of mind, but tell us a little bit about it. Tell us about who he was born there. He he filed a lawsuit against the University of Florida. And that battle went on between 1949 to 1968. He had applied to go to law school there. And the University of Florida denied him. Mm Mm-hmm. They denied his application, and he filed a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. And although Virgil never attended the University of Florida, Florida Mm -hmm. then, on that ruling and his lawsuit, was able to admit African-American students to their law school. Well, the land that the school now sits on, the land mm-hmm. that his family also gave to the historical society to provide a half acre of land that that school now sits on. Okay. Now there's wow. another. That's one of the the real positive, uh, like we say, good feeling moments that came out of the uh, Okahanka. But then mm-hmm. there's the sad part of Okahanka. Have you ever heard of the Groveland Four? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, the we talked Ford, about that. Yes, mm-hmm. which is a story, a Lake County story of tragedy. Yeah. Okay, a yeah. tragedy story. Well, that story has its beginning roots in the city of Okahunka. So for your listening audience who don't know by the Grove of Ford, we really invite you to go out and pull up some information. But I'll just give you a summary. There was a, a white couple who broke down. They actually broke down in Okahunka is where their car stalled out. Mm. And that is where the beginning of that tragic night began for those families. And it started there. And that's what the preservation of the school is going to be a historical museum that will tell all these stories, the good feeling stories. And the mm-hmm. tragic stories of our families, of our communities, as well as talk about how not to have such tragedies repeat themselves on the, the simple pr- principles that we all learned. Uh, be honest. Be forthtelling about what, what truly happens when things happen, when you see something, say something, as well mm-hmm. as always have rules and laws which treat people with respect, which is what Virgil Hawkins was asking for. I am a human being. I'm entitled to be educated at any of the finest universities in which I am entitled to attend. And that's essentially what this school was built for, 
to provide a good education, a top education, safety, education in a safe environment, in a nice environment. Mm-hmm. So that's what Florida has, you know, uh, provided with with the designation, putting out the letters, putting it on the 11 to save list. Um, it's on that list that same year was remember the stories that came out about the African-American cemeteries in Tampa mm-hmm. that, okay, mm-hmm. that, those are this, what this list does. It adds uh, an educational component, a publicity tone component to these communities to receive funding because now that they have the designation and they have received funding from the Historical Society of Florida to rebuild this school building, they still have to raise funds from the community to provide the resources to provide these educational components, uh, exhibits, funds, and furnish this building, okay? So that's mm-hmm. a little a little bit of what's going on and how we're celebrating and how the community can become involved and help bring this history to life. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk some more with my friend Stephanie Dukes and, and celebrate uh, our black history here in Central Florida. If you have questions or comments, anything you want to share, the number is 516 387 G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Does it appear the long arm of the law is working against you instead of for you? Whom do you call when the boys in blue are pursuing you? When the wrong person behind bars may end up being you. With over 40 years combined legal expertise, Anderson and Welch bring to bear a smart, sound, sensible defense of those caught in what may be the unrelenting grip of the legal system. Turn to Anderson and Welch first to get ahead of trouble, not fall into it, by calling 561-832-3386. That's 561-832-3386. That's Anderson and Welch Law Firm online at andersonandwelch.com. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today, sharing some uh, black history in Central Florida with my friend Stephanie Dukes. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. It's just amazing what you learn about. Uh, if you just dig a little bit, it's amazing what you learn about that is happening in your own backyard that you didn't know about, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, something to celebrate, you know. It, it uh, and just, yeah, something to celebrate, but at the same time, uh, you know, something that, you know, you have to uh, pay to, you know, the, the – the you know, solemn parts you have to uh, pay tribute and respect to, you know, because and you have to make sure that they stay in focus. You know, like they say, you know, the, the, those that don't know the history are doomed to, re, you know, to repeat it. We don't want to keep losing 
our, you know, our stories and our, our precious landmarks and stuff. So I'm glad that they were able to preserve that. Yes, we don't, Gretchen. And what we should know that not only know our history, but builds on our history, that each generation we're supposed to know, know more and do better. So mm-hmm. that's what, you know, preserving the history does. And a part of doing better is making sure that, you know, the current atmosphere we're in now, that our history is, is being taught publicly. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all teach our histories at home, but we're entitled to a public education, an accurate public education. And students mm-hmm. like this are able to provide that additional resource that we need for that to occur. So it is in essence that we protect the true history. Uh, and we don't get it right all the time, right out of the bat. We all will, you know, profess to that. But as we do, we are to correct it and protect it. You know? Yep. So, yeah. Now, there. And, and we have to do our work a little bit more in terms of doing homework. There are resources. That's what allowed this to happen. There are resources through the state. There are nonprofit resources where you can get uh, grants and other funding to preserve and protect those historical sites and, and you know, cult, you know, keep our history alive. You know, so, but we, we have to, like, Ask first, as they said in the Bible, ask and you shall receive. Mm-hmm. You know, now that doesn't mean you're always going to receive what you want or what you think you're entitled to, but you you won't know unless you ask. Exactly. We must participate in the process uh, mm-hmm. from asking to sustaining it. You know, we yep. can't, once you are given, we're given the resources, we have to look at how do we properly support. Uh, our resources, and that comes from community participation. That was part of what helped to build uh, these schools, not only here in Leesburg. We have another one that is still existing. I believe mm-hmm. there are 13 of these schools, still school buildings, still existing, mm-hmm. and we have two of them here in Lake County. The other one is in Mount Dora. So, oh, okay. But we, yes, in Mount Dora, and we have to participate in one, helping to preserve them by going out and donating five dollars, getting the word out, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, whatever you can contribute. Do not feel it's too little, or I don't have enough. And you have more than enough if you just give and then encourage others to give. And as part of that, then participate by visiting the centers. Participate when the community groups that are heading up these efforts attend their meetings. Be a part of what is being said. I heard your previous guest. Talk about local history mm-hmm. that contribute that this is local history. 
contribute yep. to it. These organizations have exhibits that will feature your family, your family's history if you live in these areas. Those in the Mount Dora, Okahonka, um, anywhere that you are, find your local historical society and participate in it by the telling of your story, your family story, because we all have that rich, hidden treasure. Oh, my mm-hmm. alarm is going off here. I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. So See, I, I told you she was I'm busy. A, <laughs> yeah, I'm a historian myself in the fact that my grandmother and I co-authored a book around Mulberry to tell right. its rich history because we did not want it lost. And we told it through pictures. So there are different ways to tell it. It was published through Arcadia Publishing, who does a wonderful job at getting the word out about communities all around the United States through pictures. So that's another. Don't think that you have to have all these gifted words to say. Let the pictures Mm -hmm. say it all. You just Mm -hmm. tell the captions who the people are, uh, what they're doing, and their accomplishments, you know, that was the most exciting thing to me, to be able to do that and t- show the pictures of around Mulberry. And, that, and we called it around Mulberry, most of you know, like around the Mulberry tree. <laughs> right, right. Our the, city sure the, was the great thing Mulberry. for you. I'm sure the good, great thing for you was to be able to do this when you're, with your grandmother, to share that time. You know, and that's a story that you, you can tell, you know, your family about, you know, what you and your grandmother was able to accomplish, you know. So that's a, that's a great definitely. story in and of itself. Yes. My grandmother lived to be 103 years old, thank Lord, and with all of her faculties, uh, still mm. telling me what to do and giving me sound <laughs> advice all the way to the end. So that wow. was a rich blessing to be able to yes, do that. Indeed. And you know what, Gretchen? I think that happened because I asked God as my grandmother growing up and she would tell me these stories about the different families in our community. And I actually petitioned and asked him, what am I to do with these stories? Because mm-hmm. it wasn't one time she told it. It wasn't two times. I mean, I was going on like five to ten times with some of these stories <laughs> that she would tell. And that mm-hmm. was the beginning of And He placed a lady in my life that uh, introduced me to a publisher at Arcadia Publishing Company. So that that was a blessing to be. And then I was able to tell other families' stories because in that book, their families, and it's called the Round Mulberry because we was a mining town, and because of the mm-hmm. different mines, there were little cities that would pop up like Nichols, full of height. Bradley, Bradley Junction, Pierce, (laughs) that were named after these mines. And so we told that story to tell the family stories. And that's what these school buildings that we are doing with preserving their history to allow students to now know, you know, how fortunate you are 
to have a large school campus, okay, that you can have one subject in a room and change around rooms a day when back in the day there was only one room, seven or eight different subjects was taught because we also at that time in uh, most of our communities, the African-American communities, we also taught skills, homemaking skills, wood, uh, what, what do we call We called it shop class. But it was actually, you know, how to build things out of wood. Wood wood class is what I called it, but they called it shop. As well as horticulture, agriculture and horticulture classes. Uh, because these are the things that sustain the community. And even in today's tech day we are learning that we must know technology, we must know coding, you know what it takes to survive for a survive. It's a lot. It's a, I mean, we, we just, we think we, you know, we don't, we just don't know everything, but we only scratch the surface a lot of times, you know, and it's a matter of be, being able to, um, you know, take a little time and dig a little deeper, um, just like finding treasure. You know, mm-hmm. got to take a little time, exactly. got to dig a little deeper. Yeah. Most so. definitely. And these are the things that let us know and help us find our place in society. Like, you know, I loved my, when uh, before we were integrated, I went to a segregated school to begin with. And one of the things that I could really remember was even in the first grade, we talked about your gifts, your mm-hmm. finding what it is you were good at in the community, and being able to sustain and provide a life for yourself. And I could remember them talking about, you know, what, you know, we talk about what are you going to do when you grow up. And Mm -hmm. what are the skill sets you need to make your dream come true? And those are the things that would happen in these one-room buildings, and particularly when you have kids of all ages. You have the older ones influencing the young ones. So they really, really work to make sure, okay, the older ones, we had to be on their very best because they influenced us as the younger ones coming along. Mm-hmm. So we had doctors and lawyers, as I was telling you, you know, Virgil Hawkins came out, was born there, and went right on to wanted to be a lawyer at the U, go to the University of Florida, that his dream was a big dream. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, listen, if you won't give me the path, I will fight for my path to make my dream a reality. So these are the stories. These are the Mm -hmm. strength and the determination that having the historical building, which this will be a a museum, Mm -hmm. this is the reason we have those is to yep. instill in the young ones when they come to visit as a field mm-hmm. trip from their schools to enhance right. the curriculum in our public schools. 
Steph, thanks so much for sharing that with us. And uh, we look forward to sharing some other stuff. Stephanie and I are thinking about working a, a project that we might talk about a little later. But in the meantime, okay. thank you all for listening. This is Indeed's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, all real power comes from God. Talk tomorrow. <laughs>